The most difficult thing is the decision to act. The rest is merely tenacity. Amelia Earhart said that. What is this tenacity, this stick to How is it that there are those around us who seem to be able to endure things that the rest of us just couldn't even comprehend? And let's face it, it's only in retrospect that we recognize that as we live through a situation requiring tenacity, that that's what's going on. At the time, we just want it to end. We want it to go away. But have you ever gone through something that did require you to endure? It required tenacity. But when you look back, you realize it has made you who you are. And you wouldn't have changed a thing. My guest today is Kara Van Loon. I met Kara when I lived in St. Louis. We saw each other almost every day. And even though she was working in the corporate world, you just knew this woman is an artist. Well, Kara left the corporate world and she became a painter. And that itself would be a great story. She stopped doing something she didn't love to do something she did. But there's more. There's the need for tenacity. Listen as she tells her story. feel like all artists are influenced by their story. Is that true of you? Absolutely. And I think if you if you look at at the lifeline of Kara, it really started out in my during my childhood. And I had 50% of just the most magical childhood anybody could wish for. And that was on these horses. It was lying on their backs, finding images in the sky with clouds, jumping, competing, my best friends. And then I would come home and I was, although I was from an affluent family, it was, I wasn't really wanted. Nobody, nobody really wanted to be a parent at that point. So at 16, I had my own house that I shared with my sister my mom would come home at 10. She wouldn't be there on weekends. And I was just a sophomore at the time, I believe. And so horses really saved me. And then at some point, I knew I was going to college. And my mom was so tired of helping to pay for these bills with the horse. She said, you put a price tag on that horse and get him to Indianapolis tomorrow. Get him out of here. And he had been a family pet. And it was just absolutely traumatic for me. And I went off the rails a bit and uh, went to college. Did you actually have to do it? You actually had to get rid of the horse? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just oh. overnight like that. It was. Oh, Kara. I remember at the biggest horse show of my life. It's called Trader's Point in Indianapolis. And I had, I was winning my class. And I knew before I hit the last jump, I had won this mega class, right? And so I won all this prize money. And I knew I would never see my horse after the following day and just couldn't even ride the next day. It was, it was way too much that I could cope with. So I go to college and really, really did well through college. I studied photojournalism, got an internship every summer. And part of it was I couldn't go home. Like, Where am I going to go home? So I had to get these internships. And my first one was in Troy, Ohio, then Harrisburg, PA, um, Indianapolis and 
And wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> so you, how do you get these internships in such varied places? So I was, I'm sorry, I was in photojournalism. Wherever anybody who would take you was where you would go. And I got super lucky. I probably sent out 70 portfolios my freshman year. Who's going to hire a freshman photojournalism student? Like nobody. So I sent out about 70 portfolios. And back then you had to have the slides. You were making them all yourself. You know, just spending thousands trying to find work. And somebody took a chance on me. And so I ended up in Troy, Ohio that first summer, fell in love with another photojournalism student, and he got his first job in Duluth, Minnesota. So I followed him to Duluth. I had also gotten a scholarship with the Alexia Foundation. That was the Lockerbie flight that happened over Scotland. Those were, many of those were Syracuse students coming home. One of them was a photojournalism student, student Alexia, Alexa. And so I was able to study in London for six months. So I did that came back to Duluth. They had laid off like 15% of their newsroom. So there was no job for me. And, you know, I'm, I've just graduated. I'm coming back from London. I worked at a really posh gym in a cafe. And now I'm in Duluth, Minnesota with no work. <laughs> like the only work I could find was on this polo farm. And I had to deliver hay to these horses that were so they were kept in the worst conditions I've ever seen. And it was, it was so heartbreaking. So finally, I got a job as a designer in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Took it in July. So I'm leaving Duluth, Minnesota, one of the coldest places in the U.S., to go to one of the hottest places in the U.S. in July. And um, I was there for quite a while. Man, you want to talk about going off the rails. I went off the rails big time. Like, in an abusive relationship, getting into drugs, partying, but keep, keep on keeping on. So I Were horses always kind of there, even oh, if yeah. you, so even if you weren't always riding, you always had that love for them. Yeah, it was in my blood. In fact, I remember one guy I was dating was a musician and he wrote a song called Horsey Horse. And it said, the lyrics went, I love you, but I am not a horsey. So basically I could never love him the way he wanted to be loved because I was, he wasn't a horse. Well, that's his own fault. <laughs> like get along your face, dude. <laughs> so I took the transfer to St. Louis. Like I thought, okay, maybe I'll have a fresh start here. And I was just haunted. Something about my past. It was just haunting me. Something, there was just this mega void. So when the recession hit, I was laid off from that job. I lost everything. I lost my house. I lost the job. Um, I think they were going to repo my car at some point. So my roommate I mean, I had invested heavily in Florida real estate. He lost everything too. He was my roommate in this South City St. Louis bungalow dump. And so he knew somebody who had this unrehabbed loft in downtown St. Louis. And he said, there's two units open. It's very boutique-y. We're not supposed to be living there, but it's full of artists and art collectors. And I'm going to see if I can't get you a loft and get myself a loft too. And he did. And I remember before everything was finalized, we would go out there in his car and just sit in the parking lot and look at this dump of a loft and just be like, wouldn't that be the coolest thing ever? And we got in. It had a wall of Southern facing windows and uh, the light that would come in. 
but I will say this, when I moved in, there were sheets nailed to the windows. It was all painted black. There was a grow box in it. I thought it was a casket. And then I opened it up and I'm like, oh, I think they grow marijuana in that. They're farmers. (laughs) (laughs) And so moved in, I had it painted. It was painted teal and a mustard yellow. And it was so perfect. And we sewed these 16 foot curtains with this trim from the harem fabrics where one of my girlfriends worked like it was so painfully gorgeous by the end. And there were all these canvases, all these paints lying around and everybody, if they weren't living there as a painter, they were coming in as a painter and they invited me to start painting with them. And that was when I picked up a paintbrush. I had to find work to cover my bills, right? So I was working this dead end job in South City where I used to live, like at some, the worst bar you can imagine. And I got stuck behind a carriage and I was like, you know, if I'm going to be poor, I'm going to have a good time. So I applied for a job and I became a carriage driver. And I remember when the horse was sweating, I was going down an alley. So the wind blew that sweat and horses, if you don't know them, have a very particular sweet smell. And I smelled that and it was it was almost audible to hear my soul just go, Oh, thank God we're home. Yeah. So the painting and the horses happened simultaneously. I did not know you didn't go to school to learn to paint. (laughs) No, I studied photojournalism. So you're just in this essentially abandoned building loft gorgeousness amongst artists. Yeah. So how did the painting start? So there was this huge six by six canvas that one of the artists, he's like, well, why don't you try this? And I remember I gessoed it and I spray painted two horses on it. And wait a minute, you spray painted two horses. Yeah. Yeah. And then went back over it with acrylic paints and um, mixed the paints with water to get sort of a transparent effect. And it ended up, so beautiful. And I remember one of the artists, and this this was honest to God key. I was going to do more and it looked very unfinished. It looked very rustic. And he said to me, he goes, I think it's done. And knowing when it's done and saying that's enough, that was that was a pivotal experience to know when to say that's enough. Are you there now? So when you work on paintings now do you know when they're done yeah yeah because I've heard that from other painters and you hear that there's this work they could never put out they could because it just wasn't it just wasn't quite perfect and it has to be soul-sucking because then how do you get to perfect you know right right you I definitely know when it's not done and that's painful because the beauty of being quarantined and having all these art shows canceled is I've shifted from looking at deadlines to going back to enjoying the process, to being able to experiment with new techniques. And that has been such a gift. And I think it's so evident in the work I'm producing right now. How is that? Why is it different? Um, Let me rephrase it. Is it different to you or could other people look at it? I think people can look at it and say, like, I found a technique now where it just looks so aged and kind of beat up and you've still got these vibrant colors, but it looks like maybe there was a sepia tone photograph with it at some time. So it ties in 
a bit of my history. And it was all from a mistake. You know, it was not the best though. (laughs) But the, even the, the look of your work is absolutely your signature. I've never seen anything like it. It's not abstract. It's not realist. It, 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 but it's not a caricature. I don't know. How, how do you describe the way you see horses in your paintings? Because horses, that's pretty much it, right? That's it. Yeah. I'll do a dog occasionally, maybe a cat sometimes, but mostly it's all horse centric. Dogs are horse related. Cats are. So anything that would be related will make an appearance, but. But they don't look like, like you sat and you're taking a a picture and then recreating this picture of a horse. They always, to me, look like an emotion. They always do. Like there's a, sometimes they look frail. And other times they look yeah. gentle and other times they look proud. I mean, it's just that it could be from a horse. And I am not a horse lover. It's amazing. <laughs> it's really amazing. So there's there's a few things going on that you touched on. Um, one is the fact I've never been a great drawer. So I exploit that. I've never been a good illustrator. So I exploit that. Um, when I first started, they looked very primal. They looked very cave-like because that's the best I could do. And people were drawn to that. So then it evolved. I got a little better at making them look more like horses. And as I got my own horses and I got into competing again, I'm like, how are these things always breaking? (laughs) Or how are they even standing? You, when you have a horse, especially one that's jumping, they fall apart pretty easily. So those long, delicate legs reflects the fragility. Horses are strong but they are delicate. And and the thing I love most about a horse, it's not riding, it's not jumping, it's observing them. It's sitting there watching them and they speak so loudly in subtleties. And I'm such like a wildly animated person that to see a horse just cock its head and the other three horses in the pasture run in the other direction, it's phenomenal. It's, I love, I love watching that. It's, I'm so glad that you explained it that way because I never knew that. I never. I don't know anything about horses, but it's true because the the legs are elongated, right? And it's so different. Anybody else who photographs or paints horses, they want to show the muscles and like the the wildness of going into the wind and just the, the fierceness of being so wild. But yours have this sometimes feminine, mm-hmm. but always graceful. There's always grace. Even some of them that you show, it's almost like they're puffed up, like they're really proud, but there's still this elegance to them. But you capture almost a humanness. You capture who they really are. Like if if you've got them out, the, seeing them galloping, is your chances are like 2%. For, you know, for the most part, they're just going to be walking around, eating grass, looking at stuff, looking at each other. They're not, that's what they do. I mean, that's, they're just, they're, they're quiet animals. You know, it's in horses. When you approach a horse, it is the one thing I've found where I can drop all my emotion. You cannot approach a horse with emotion. You have to be a blank slate. If you are really hyper and excited, their EQ is so sensitive. They'll, they'll know before you're within 50 feet of them. And taking some of the pain of my past, 
I use that with an approach to horses. And so there's, I just try to be fair with them. And I try to show that in the paintings, just kind of um, a pure, pure love that I have for them and to thank them for saving me. Do you find that the painting is maybe therapeutic is almost too clinical, but is it helpful for you emotionally? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the other thing with being a professional artist is, and Lisa, you remember this, how many times did I come into your office crying and sobbing? That type of structured environment in corporate America was not for me. And I kept trying it and I kept failing and I felt stifled. I, I felt everything. I felt everything bad. And so working for myself is, it's all I can do. I'm motivated when I'm making my own money as opposed to making it for somebody else. So it's, it's kind of all I could do at this point. So the reason I ask you about the art serving as, I'm just going to say therapy, because I want people who hear this, who struggle to recognize the value of indulging creativity not as an indulgence. And I'm going to just tell us a little quick story. So I was at the grocery store, this is here up in New Hampshire. And I photograph women. I, you know, I love to photograph women. So I'm at the store and this young girl is with her mom. She's 13, you know, when you're supposed to be cool and you don't want to be with your mom. And she's flitting up the aisle dancing. And I thought, how beautiful. How does she do this? Just no pretenses. So I approached her mom, told her how much I love photographing women, all of this. So they came to my studio. We made an arrangement, came. So here's this 13-year-old, and I photographed her as I saw her as this strong, graceful presence. So fast forward a couple of years. She comes to my new studio because I want her to see that I created this 30 by 40 inch print of her face, her beautiful face, and she never got to see it. And over the two years, something changed. And it wasn't because she was older. It wasn't the teenage angst. Something happened in her heart. And she was just, she wasn't dark, but she was sad. And she said that she started painting as her way of expressing because she couldn't put it into words. Thank goodness you have this. What I told her is that I bet that she can look across the room and pick out people who have the same pain, even if it's from a different source. She could, she could identify, and what a gift that is. So my hope is to be able to use my studio to have her and people like her just talk about the value of expressing through creativity, that you don't need to go to school for it. You just need to create. So when I hear your story and what I know about you, and I didn't know all the details of your story, I just knew that there was pain. Mm-hmm. And to know that you brought yourself to where you are in your artistry, that there wasn't some professor who taught you how to do it. It was life that taught you how to do it. And you let it mold your heart. You guys take something blank and transcribe your heart onto it. It's really interesting what you're saying about the school part, because, you know, all this started during the recession and I had always been taught education, education. My mentor I remember asking him, and he's a very renowned painter. Painter, He's made the cover of Art Collector magazine. And 
I said, Jeff, should I go back to school? You know, should I go get my MFA? He said, don't you dare or you will never paint again. And you look at photography. It is really, really hard for me to pick up a camera. And I did so well. And if I didn't have that background, that experience, I'm not sure I would have believed him with the painting. But yeah, you don't want to get caught up in the theories and you don't want to be so knowledgeable about everybody's process and technique and the reason that you get in your own head and can't just create. I think, I think creating is, is one of the best gifts anybody can give themselves. And, and the other thing, um, I think that, yes, a lot of this was me creating this, but I do have to give major kudos to my partner, fiance, Tom. The first gift he ever gave me was an easel. He wanted to be sure I kept that identity painting. And so that was really, it wasn't about the easel. It was about, I really like this part of you. I believe in this part of you. And I want this to keep happening for you. So I owe him a lot too. So you mentioned a couple of times the art shows. You travel for your art shows. Yeah. And I've started traveling further and further. And it was, I, so I spent the winter in, o, in a Florida and I had done this horse show in Ocala, which is like the horse capital of the world and did exceptionally well. And I was just on this trajectory that I said to Tom, I go, I don't even know if I can keep up with this. It was going so great. And I was getting into coveted art shows and, um, you know, and I feel like in the time I've been doing this, to be getting into some of these shows is just mind-boggling. And then COVID-19 hit, and it's just like slamming on the brakes. But fortunately, I still have a lot of people who still want the artwork. Their commissions are still happening. But I hope to keep on with that. I hope I can pick back up where I left off. Well, like we were saying before we started recording, everything has stopped though. So it's not as though other artists are showing and now you have to catch up. Everybody's stopping. Right. And you know, I'm not a hypocrite. I am creating like crazy. Yeah. So it's, it's just been fun. Let me ask you about thing I see with a lot of people I know who are artists. There are two in St. Louis that I think they're fantastically talented, but both of them have a hard time seeing their talent. Is that something you struggle with too? I think very much so initially. And I remember after my first successful art show, I just laid on the couch and I felt horrible. I felt like I didn't deserve all the recognition I had gotten. I, I felt like a fraud to some degree. As time went on, and I gained confidence, gained a little more notoriety. I thought, you know what? I've, I have really worked hard for this. And this is not fair behavior to the people who have believed in me. This is not fair. Because if they believe in me and they have spent a lot of money on me because they believe in me, I owe it to them to keep fighting. You, you owe it to the person who you're a no-name somebody. And they took a risk on you. You need to keep keep selling, keep creating, keep getting out there and make that $500 painting a $50,000 painting someday. Wow, I like that. What would you tell other artists who do struggle with that? 
Because before you got to that point, you suffered with the self-doubt and the apprehension. So what would you tell artists who deal with that? Here's, here's what works for me. Some, at some point in the recession, I worked in laundry at Nordstrom. And I, had, I was horrible. I had a really hard time selling a $130 bra and not saying, you know, you can get this in a different color at half off at the rack if you just go there. It was really hard for me. I did not believe in my product. Um, I believed in the service. I loved what Nordstrom taught me, but I did not believe in what I was selling. But what I truly believe is people need artwork in their homes. This is, you, you have spent more money on this home than you've spent on anything. This is where you sleep. It's where you wake up. It is your sanctuary and you need things in it that you feel good about. And if somebody feels good about your artwork, how what a better way to touch the world, to touch people's lives. That's a real gift. Now, the theme of this podcast is the same always, and that is how do you want to be seen? It is about who you are. How would you answer it? How would you want to be seen? Ideally for me, how I would want to be seen is somebody who deserves recognition. I don't know if I'm at that point yet, but five or 10 years down the road, I would want my portrait to say she deserves, she deserves it. She got it and she deserved it. I've never heard anyone say anything remotely like that. Well done. Thanks. I am really, really grateful that you would take your time. Thank you. Thanks for thinking I'm worth it. I appreciate that. The most difficult thing is the decision to act. The rest is merely tenacity. The fears are paper tigers. You can do anything you decide to do. You can act to change and control your life, and the procedure and the process is its own reward. That's the rest of her quote. What's your paper tiger? What are some decisions that you have made that felt bigger than you, that turned out, in fact, to be paper tigers? Not to say that it wasn't difficult, not to say that it didn't require endurance. Of course it does. But when you push through and you do the work and you come out not unscathed, but a different, often better version of yourself, well, what does she say? The procedure, the process, is its own reward. I really love Kara's story, how she has been able to use pain, use the things that required endurance to turn it into something that has shaped her. And now she's much happier for it. Creativity is powerful. Does it change everything? Does it make it all better? Of course not. But is feeding creativity a silly indulgence? Of course not. Thank you, Kara, for sharing so much of yourself and helping us to remember to stick with it, to continue to see beauty everywhere. Her response to the question, how do you want to be seen? I really like that. She's done the work and she wants to be seen as deserving. How do you want to be seen? At some point, this global pandemic will not be the primary thing we're all talking about. How do you want to be seen as you look back at the way you've handled the situation we're in right now? Will you be seen as someone who was determined, patient, kind? We can all do that. 
We just have to choose. We have to decide how we want to be seen. Until next time, please be safe, be kind, and thank you for listening.